0: And I'll hail the power. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal diadem
1: Father, we confess this morning that our Lord Jesus Christ indeed is the risen Christ for sinners slain. And that's how we can approach you. That's why we would approach you. Because our Savior came and underwent the miseries of this life. the wrath of a holy God, the cursed death of a cross, and was buried in a borrowed tomb for a time, but was raised from the grave for our justification that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might be pardoned, that we might have a righteousness not our own credited, imputed to us. And we confess great is the mystery of this godliness. That our Lord Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh with a real human body. But was justified, vindicated by your spirit in his resurrection from the grave. Having satisfied divine justice on sin. He was seen by angels and he was proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And Lord, because of that proclamation to the nations, we are gathered this morning across the world to proclaim a Christ crucified, raised from the grave, that we might be called the children of God. Father, we pray that across the world today, Your name would be glorified in Your risen Son, Jesus, by our worship. We pray that Your people across the world would be edified and built up in their faith as they magnify Your glory and beauty and sufficiency in the face of Your Son, Jesus, and by Your Spirit. But I also pray that, Lord, those who are eavesdropping, on worship services across the world who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray today they could behold the risen Lamb for sinners slain and that they would repent of their sins and trust in Him. And we ask these things today, Lord, in the name of our risen Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fear Striving sees my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I say.
1: is risen. He is risen indeed. With turning your bible to Matthew chapter 27 we'll be looking at verses 62 to chapter 28 verse 15. 27 62 to chapter 28 verse 15. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a Christ who has reconciled us to you through his life, his death, his resurrection from the grave. It is the ground of our hope. As Peter said, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your great mercy, you have given us new birth into a living hope a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that cannot be affected by the stock market or a virus, but kept in heaven for us, one that is imperishable and undefiled. And that is our eternal hope. It's a living hope. And we pray that we could behold that hope today through the preaching of the gospel of hope. We ask this for your son's sake, for the benefit of your people. Amen. I recently read a, a biography on Andy Griffith and Don Knotts of the Andy Griffith show Fame. And in it, I learned that when they began the show, they only planned to do five seasons. As a result, there was never a grand storyline that kind of weaved through the, the shows, through the seasons. Uh, no storyline that connected all the shows together. Each show stood on its own. And as a result, even though I consider it one of the greatest shows of all time, it's a show filled with many contradictions. So for instance, three middle names are given for Barney Fife over the course of those seasons. Andy Taylor's home address has three different addresses during the course of those seasons. On several occasions, Barney says it's only 12 miles from Mayberry to Mount Pilate. And yet in other places, Andy says it's an hour drive. In one of the episodes, they have a class reunion. And Andy and Barney graduated from the class of 1945. But later in the episodes, they have another class reunion. And it says they graduated in the class of 1945. Forty-eight. In some episodes, Gomer Pyle can't sing. In other episodes, he is a world-class singer. These are just a small sample of the contradictions from a show that spanned just eight years. But examples like this help us help drive home how remarkable it is That our Bible, our 66-book canon, breathed out by the Spirit through the pen of human authors, penned over the course of some 1,500 years by over 40 human authors, has complete continuity and consistency. It's remarkable. A story that you might say it's critical turning points could be described by generation, that is, creation, God creating all things good, degeneration, that is, a fall that happened in history through one man, Adam, that brought sin into the world, a curse on the created order, degeneration, and then the hope of regeneration, that is, renewal, new life, promised through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who would crush the seed of the serpent. And certainly Matthew was well aware of that storyline. In fact, in the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, he writes these words the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is signaling that the promises made to Abraham. The promises made to David by those covenants that he, God makes with them is going to be fulfilled through this greater son, Jesus. The, the phrase here, the book of the genealogy, is the Greek, biblios genesis. Now, why is that important? Well, for those, in Matthew's audience would have been those who were well-versed in their Old Testament, It would have triggered two texts to mind from the very first book of their Bible. Genesis 2-4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Biblios genesis, same phrase that we see in Matthew 1-1. When they were created. So this is an account of creation. Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 verse 4. Creation. God created all things good. But there was a fall. Sin entered through the world. Entered the world through one man's disobedience, Adam. The curse of sin entering the world as well. Degeneration. But then the promise of regeneration, renewal, new life through this seed who would come. And then Genesis five one, picking up that promise from Genesis three fifteen. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Biblios genesis. The same phrase found in Genesis 2-4 that refers to creation. The same phrase found in Matthew 5 verse 1 which refers to Christ. When Adam had lived 130 years, verse 3, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The name means appointed one. And so Seth's line, his family, can be traced through Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. Matthew is saying that in Jesus Christ, we have that new beginning promised and initiated in the Son, Seth. Matthew, in his gospel, is giving us a record of the new Genesis age introduced by the coming of Jesus Christ. But as we will see, officially launched, inaugurated by His resurrection from the grave. This is the central theme of the Bible. But because this is the central theme... Of the Bible, of salvation, of redemptive history, it stands to reason that there will be an all out war on its veracity, on its trustworthiness. And we see that in our text. At this point in our text, Jesus has been crucified. Maybe you are a first time listener to a gospel sermon. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Jesus bears the sin of those who would trust in him. And he satisfies God's wrath on that sin. This has been accomplished. Jesus was on the cross and said, it is finished. That's what he was referring to. And so he has died. He's been buried. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, We know this from Matthew 27. For Jesus' body, and he laid it in his own new tomb, and then he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. And this has set the religious leaders off. So we begin our passage looking at this paranoid plan that they formulate for damage control. And yet, they don't even realize what has happened when they begin to formulate this plan. Notice with me in verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation. So the day of preparation was Friday. It was a day to prepare for their most holy day, which was the Sabbath. So this is Friday, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, which is the Sabbath the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So on this Sabbath, this Saturday, as we know it, there was a meeting with the religious leaders and Pilate who weren't necessarily friends of each other, but they had a common enemy, you could say. And they are filled with worry. They are filled with paranoia. And notice in verse 63. And they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Remarkably, the religious leaders are still pursuing Jesus even after his death. But six times in Matthew... And we know at least one of those times, Matthew 12, this prediction was said in front of these religious leaders, but six times Jesus foretold his death and his resurrection from the grave on the third day. Now, his disciples had seemed to consistently misunderstand what Jesus was saying when he predicted his death and his resurrection from the grave. That's what's ironic about this passage. Ironically, Jesus' enemies seem to know exactly what he was saying. And it speaks to the reliability of this account that Matthew himself, one of the 12 disciples, reveals here that the opponents take Jesus' words about Jesus' resurrection more seriously than the disciples did. After all, where are the disciples at this point? They have fled the scene. But these religious leaders assumed that the disciples did understand. These leaders, I do not believe, anticipated a resurrection. They see Jesus here, they call him an imposter. But they feared that the twelve would attempt to stage a mock resurrection by stealing his body from the tomb. But in so doing, they overestimate the disciples. But their biggest error was in underestimating the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there have been so, so many attempts to explain away the resurrection it stands to reason. I mean, that is the ground of our hope. Many, many people were crucified on a Roman cross through the, the centuries. Some 10,000, some historians say. But there's only one who bore the sins of God's people and, were, and was raised from the grave. And so it stands to reason there's going to be a spiritual warfare directed at that doctrine. And there have been so many attempts to explain away the resurrection. But the fact that there are so many explanations reveal that the skeptics do not have an answer for the resurrection. One contemporary skeptic that I think it bears to point out because he is the darling of secular media at this time of the year and these secular documentaries that try to speak about the the historical Jesus is the liberal New Testament scholar, and I use the word scholar loosely here, John Dominic Crossan. John Dominic Crossan asserts that Jesus was crucified, then buried in a shallow grave with a bunch of other criminals. In time, some wild dogs ate his body. And here's what he says. But as for his body, those who cared, that is, those who cared about Jesus, did not know where it was, and those who knew where it was did not care. That's so far from what the Bible says about the account. In other words, Crossan recognizes he knows nothing about what happened to Jesus' body, and yet for some reason, every year at Easter, He's the authority on Jesus. Well, Matthew did not know Crossan, obviously. And unless Crossan repents of his sins and trusts in Christ at his age 86, very soon, Matthew will never know him. But Matthew did know that skeptics would arise through the ages and deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this future martyr, And that's what Matthew was, a man who would be willing to die for what he believed about the resurrected Christ. This future martyr gives us the true story of what really happened. And he explicitly addresses the lie here that says Jesus' disciples stole his body. And that is an insane theory. For one thing, the disciples were not of the mindset to pull this off. They had abandoned Jesus. Now, again, that speaks to the veracity of the story. I mean, this is one of the disciples writing the story, and, and he, he's not painting himself or his friends in a very positive light, but they had abandoned Jesus out of fear. Secondly, professional guards were appointed at that tomb. Men trained for this one thing. The disciples were not trained in military warfare. They couldn't have pulled that off. And third, if the disciples did steal the body, then 10 of the 12 would end up dying for that lie. Who would do that? One of the 12 would be exiled, John. And related to this final point... What transformed these cowards? The cowards we read about in Matthew 27 into the bold witnesses of Christ that we read about in the book of Acts. It can only be explained by one thing. They beheld the risen Christ. There's a statement that I've been aware of for some time by Chuck Colson, who was Richard Nixon's hatchet man, if you will, during the Watergate scandal, in the early 70s. Of course, he was gloriously converted while in prison. He was born again, as his autobiography tells us. And he says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men I'm assuming he's including the Apostle Paul in this. Testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The reality is is that if the disciples knew that the resurrection was a sham, what could possibly be their motive? Was it a financial motive? No. They received nothing but beatings. Loose the loss of their livelihood because of their preaching of this resurrection. There was no money in the message. How about their reputation? Were they just trying to promote their reputation? Brand building? Building a platform? No. They lost their reputation in their religion of Judaism. They lost their reputation in their culture. Many of them lost their reputation with their own families. Most of them lost their very lives. But the disciples would give their lives away for that message because they knew that Jesus had been raised. They knew what these religious leaders should have learned and believed in time. But these leaders' hearts were too hardened. It's the problem with many in the world today. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is a hardened heart towards the authority of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's evidence by how this passage begins and how it ends. Notice what it says in verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. I want you to see that word secure. It's found three times in verses 64 and 60 to 66. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. They're convinced that this is all a fraud. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Trained men for this. Go make it as secure as you can. Again, the second word, secure. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is an example of false security. We should all be aware of what false security can do. Given the times in which we're living, especially for those of us in the West, we have felt so secure because of our medical science advances. We've felt so secure because of the stock market and and a stable workforce. We have felt secure because of all of these things that now are being taken away. This is false security. But in securing the tomb, they did more than they knew, much more than they knew. They ensured by securing the tomb that there could be no nonsense story about the disciples stealing the body. In other words, their precautions, God was going to turn on their head their precautions would reinforce the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. We'll see that later. So we've seen this paranoid plan formulated. Most importantly about this passage, we see a glorious plan fulfilled. That brings us to chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, now we're going to see that word behold, or the word see, a synonym, same word in the original language, four times in this passage. Jesus, Matthew wants us to behold, all right? And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Mark's account tells us they were wondering how they were going to deal with the stone. Well, God dealt with it. And so instead of the stone being an impediment, uh, it becomes a chair for the, the angel. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, The guards trembled and became like dead men. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that women were the first who discovered the empty tomb. As Matthew will reveal to us, that the resurrected Christ also first appeared to women. Now, why is this important? Well, first and foremost, it shows us God's esteem for women in a world that marginalized women, in a world and a time that sinfully marginalized women. In fact, a woman's testimony would not hold up in court. The Gospels begin with the shepherds praising the baby Jesus. The shepherds' testimony would not show up in court, and the women's witness would not stand in court either. And even into the second century, for instance, there was a, a Greek philosopher named Celsus <coughs> who was an enemy to Christianity. And in one of his writings, here's his argument Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. Do you see the implications here? Remarkable implications. If the gospel writers were making up these stories to spearhead their movement, they would have never written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ in His empty tomb. But the reason they do is because that's what happened. The Gospels are telling us what happened. And when these women arrived, they found that the stone had rolled away, a massive stone caused by an angel of the Lord who descended from heaven and an earthquake occurring as the angel descends from heaven. That he rolled away. The stone away, though, of course, was not so that Jesus could get out of the grave, all right? But so that the women might get into the tomb and see that it was empty. And this horrified the guards, everything about it. It says they became like dead men. They became like dead men because they saw an angel using a stone that was intended to to seal the tomb. They they saw him sitting on the stone like it was a, a chair. They became like dead men because the one they were paid to guard is missing. Everything about this horrified the guards. But the angel's business was not with the guards. The angel's business was with the women. Verse 5, but the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, I love that, as he said, Come see the place. Where he lay. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he was and is all that he claimed to be as our great prophet, priest, and king. As our king, he defeated all of his and our enemies, sin, death, and the devil by his cross and his resurrection from the grave. As our priest, he offered himself the perfect sacrifice to God to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God. And as our prophet, he prophesied that he would die, be crucified, and be raised from the grave on the third day. And there are four commands, four imperatives in verses 6 and 7 that are critical here. The first we see in verse 6, come and see. Notice, he is not here, for he is risen. Come, see the place where he lay. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher in London, England, preached an entire sermon on this one verse And he offered, I believe, some very helpful insights from this this grave, this tomb, that bear repeating. First of all, this tomb speaks to the condescension of Jesus. Now, what do we mean by condescension? The going low of the eternal Son of God. He was a man. He is a man. But he wasn't a man for whom death was natural. He never sinned. He fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed God. Every word, deed, thought, or action was an obedience to God. He loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. He fulfilled all righteousness for those of us who are unrighteous. Death was not natural to this man. This was the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh, and yet he died. And we are to behold this. That verb, behold, is an important verb in this passage. We are to behold the glory. We are to marvel the glory of this beautiful Savior who would be willing to go to a borrowed tomb that we might have the forgiveness of sins. Second thing that we can learn from this tomb is the horror of sin. It was our sin that put him there. As the prophet Isaiah prophesied some 750 years earlier, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our sin was imputed to him. God crushed him for our sin as our substitute. Third, That tomb reminds us all, we too will die. Unless Jesus Christ returns first, we all too will end up in a tomb, a grave. The tomb symbolizes our mortality and warns us that that day is coming. We can no longer live as if we're oblivious to that. One benefit to a, a global tragedy that we are experiencing right now is that it opens our eyes up to the reality of our mortality. Now, we are no more mortal today than we were two months ago. We're just more aware of it. And in that sense, it's a blessing. The veil has been pulled back. We are seeing more clearly than ever. We too will die. But That brings us to the fourth implication of this empty tomb. We must see inside that tomb and see that it's empty. Jesus Christ has risen. He has a heartbeat. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin for those who would trust in him. Now, why must you trust in him in order to experience the blessings of his resurrection? Because it is by faith you are united to him. And being united to him you experience, you have the very resurrection and vindication that Jesus Christ himself experienced. Fifth, we as believers shall also rise with Jesus. That empty tomb signals our future. It foreshadows our future. We've been made alive spiritually by regeneration. One day our bodies will be raised from the grave and united to our souls So come and see. Those are the two imperatives we see in verse 6, but we see two more imperatives in verse 7. Go and tell. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you shall see him. See, I have told you. This reality was not to be sat on. It was not to be kept to the vest. Once these women, these believing women, had seen and experienced the reality that Jesus Christ had been raised, they were to go and tell. That is the normal response to this reality. Now notice in verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy. You can have fear and joy simultaneously. There's a healthy fear. The fear that they have here is the fear of God as He has revealed Himself in raising His Son from the dead. It's a healthy fear, a reverential awe. It's every proper response to God's self-revelation in His resurrected Son. So they went with fear and great joy. How do you know if you have a healthy fear? Fear accompanies joy. How do you know if your fear is unhealthy? There's no joy. It's a joyless fear. They went with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, there's that verb. Matthew wants us to behold. He knows that that's our greatest need. Our greatest need in the Christian life is to behold the glory of God in the resurrected Christ. He says, Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. I can't even imagine what they were feeling and experiencing at that moment. Greetings. And they came up. And notice, very interesting language. They took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. They took hold of His feet, and they worshipped Him. They had been the last at the cross. They were there as He's crucified. they have been the first at the tomb to see that it was empty. And they were the first to see their resurrected Lord. And I'm not sure if Matthew is thinking in terms of the two natures of Christ here, but it's certainly implied Notice they took hold of his feet. This wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. This was a physical resurrection. He had feet, real feet. They were the feet that he had before his crucifixion, during his crucifixion. But now these feet are a part of a body that's been raised from the dead. It is a glorified feet, but real feet. It's a, Active homage. Notice it says they worshiped him. Now, 10 times in the book of Matthew, we're told that people, various people, worship Jesus two of those times after he's raised from the grave. This is the first time that we read that they worship Jesus after his resurrection. But the reason this is important, among other reasons, is remember all the way back at the beginning of. Matthew, the gospel, Matthew 4, Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And he says, only God is to be worshiped. So this kind of speaks to Matthew's high Christology. A man who had spent three years with Jesus. He had seen Jesus in every situation you can can see a man. And here he is confessing that this Jesus is no mere man. Yes, he is a man. He has feet. But He is God, a very God. He is worthy to be worshipped. Now notice in verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. I love that. Don't we need that today? There are many reasons in a sin-cursed world to be afraid, but the promises of God in Christ are greater reasons not to be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So he accepts their worship and then he repeats the angel's command, don't be afraid, go and tell. Go and tell. If we are beholding the glory of God in Christ, that will be our knee-jerk response. We will go and tell. And so maybe you're hearing this message today for the first time and maybe the Spirit of God is convicting you to trust in Jesus. To worship Jesus, the next response is to go and tell. Now, at this point, there's a transition. He turns from the joy, the fear of Jesus' followers back to the very real problem facing the Jewish authorities that we read about at the end of chapter 27. And here we see that their foolish plan, that was a paranoid plan, this foolish plan has failed notice with me in verse 11 while they were going behold there it is some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers they're going to pay the soldiers off to to contrive their story and said tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now that would have been a very dangerous thing for the, for the soldiers to do. That's why they received money. For them to admit something like that could have cost them their lives, certainly their jobs, but they had nothing else to do. I mean, that's, they had no other option at this point. And if this comes to the governor's ears, We will satisfy him. Don't worry about him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Again, all they had to do was guard one tomb, one body for three days, and their threat is over forever. One problem, this is always the problem, for sinners and skeptics, God intervened. He broke in. As John Christensen, the golden mouth preacher, famously said, Behold, a seal, a stone, and a watch that is a guard. And they were not able to hold him. They were not able to hold him. I love that. And it's highly ironic. This whole passage is ironic. They seek to cover up the resurrection by advancing the very story they had all wanted to prevent when they appointed the guards there in the first place. But it also reveals the hardness of their hearts. You see, the issue is not evidence, it's never a lack of evidence. It's that we love our sin and we deep down recognize the implications of a resurrected Christ. If Christ has been raised, we understand that we are accountable to him. And we don't like that. We love our sin too much. And that's the issue here. All the way back in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40, these very religious leaders had said to Jesus, just give us a sign. If you give us a sign, we'll trust, we'll believe in you. And what did Jesus say back in Matthew 12, 38 to 40? The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, who went into the belly of the well for three days and was raised out of the well. In other words, the only sign I'm going to give you is the resurrection. And now they have that sign. They have the sign of signs, but rather than submitting, rather than bowing the knee, Rather than responding in worship as the women did, they seek to destroy the evidence. But it can't be destroyed. Here's the reason that evidence cannot be destroyed. Because the evidence is a person. The evidence is a living evidence. I love what Douglas O'Donnell has written. The resurrection of Jesus Christ... Is being preached every Sunday in Caracas, in Cairo, Moscow, and Madrid, Dakar in Dublin, Buenos Aires and Baghdad, Santiago de Cuba and Seoul, Melbourne in Montreal, Bangalore and Belgrade, Reno, and Rio de Janeiro. Paul says that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, we are still in our sins. Our preaching is futile. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. This is your best life now. For tomorrow you die in your sins. But if it is true... And Paul says it is. Indeed, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if it is true, the implications are massive. Absolutely massive. Because Jesus Christ, having raised from the grave, has reversed the curse on Jesus a fallen humanity who will trust in Him. He has reversed the curse on the created order that we will see consummated when He returns. And Christ, raised from the grave and ascended to the Father, has sent His Spirit to resource our pilgrimage, to resource, to give us everything pertaining to life and godliness through His Spirit. He comes to bear, in other words, as our resurrected and ascended Christ with His covenantal presence, His sovereignty and power and His authority in our lives and in our situations, no matter what they may be, even if it's a quarantined life for a time. So when it comes to your besetting sin, Jesus is risen. Do you have a troublesome marriage? Jesus is risen. Is there a person in your life that you find very difficult to love? Jesus is risen. Do you have a lost loved one that you grieve over their eternal destiny? Jesus is risen. How about the worries and the anxieties that The whole world is experiencing right now. Maybe you're struggling with loneliness. We were made for community. God himself, the triune God, is a a communal God, perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense in which loneliness bears witness to the reality that you are the image of God. Are you struggling with loneliness? Are you struggling with depression that comes from being isolated? Jesus is risen. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has risen. And the resurrection is the great, great evidence and proof that Jesus is and was and is who He claimed to be. The resurrection also signals that the Father has been satisfied by the payment of the Son. No matter what sins you have committed, Jesus Christ paid for those sins on the cross. If you will believe. The resurrection is God the Father's Amen to the it is finished of the Son. There is no condemnation for those now who are in Jesus Christ. We know that by His resurrection. But there's more. In the resurrection, We have the first fruits of a virus-free new creation. Furthermore, in keeping with how Matthew began his gospel, where Jesus is now the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham and to David. Listen to these words. Paul, in his first public sermon, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers. Who are the fathers? adam Abraham, David, and the list can continue. What God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. See what Paul is saying? The resurrection of Jesus is the inaugural fulfillment of all the promises made to the fathers. We have that hope. One more thing. His resurrection also assures us that there's coming a day of judgment. He took the judgment on the cross ahead of time for those who would trust in him. But there's coming a day of judgment because God is just, and a just judge must judge sin. And he assures us by his resurrection that there's a day of judgment, and he will be the agent of that judgment. Again, the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 says these words, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. That's the assurance that a judgment's coming. He raised him from the dead. And here's my question to you as we close. Are you ready for this judgment? There's judgment coming. That tomb reminds us that we all will sin. We all will die in our sin if we don't trust in the Lord Jesus. Are you ready for that judgment? And here's the good news of Easter, the good news of Resurrection Sunday. You can be. You can be. All you have to do is humble yourself. Jesus has humbled himself that he might save a people. Now you must humble yourself and confess, I'm a sinner. I'm messed up, And, and I deserve judgment. I deserve the justice of God. I deserve the wrath of God. But I now see, I now behold that God has made provision for my judgment in the Son who took the judgment and was raised from the grave that I might have the forgiveness of sins. If you will trust in Jesus today, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven and you can avert judgment. That's the good news of the gospel. Indeed, Christ is risen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a risen Christ who is in the world today, reigning and ruling by His Spirit. May that gospel incite faith, hope, and love in your people across the world. A greater fervency. And may that gospel come to bear on those who do not know Jesus. And may today be the day of salvation. We ask this in His name. Amen.
0: God sent His Son, they called Him Jesus, He came to love, heal, and forgive. grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because He lives, I can Lord. Hebrews had this wonderful benediction at the end of his sermon. He says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, thanks be to God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let your kingdom come. Let your way.